Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Mill Street Radio from KRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Author Angela Hoy started working at her family's takeaway restaurant when she was eight years old. Today, she shares her best stories and the takeaways in her workings, like how this very small restaurant handled their very large menu. My dad had almost like a, a periodic table <laughs> on the side of the walk, and you could see all the like bullet points of like the basic recipe. So you could like just whack it out under pressure in like under five minutes. That's later in the show, a peek behind the takeaway counter with author Angela Hoy. But first, it's my interview with LA Times food columnist Jen Harris about her article, How Food Influencers Can Make or Break Restaurants. Jen, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. I love classic restaurant reviews. I'm a big fan of like the New York Times, the LA Times, because I like the fact that it's someone you know as a reviewer. Maybe not personally, but you get to know their style. And I think the the writing, if they're really good, they actually write a story about a restaurant, not just tell you what they like and don't like. So I'm old school. Um, <laughs> I'm probably old school about everything. <laughs> but you're telling me those days may be over and restaurants are now turning to influencers. And that's what's really driving the restaurant business less so than the classic individual reviewer, right? 
I, I think it's a mixture of both. I think the reviews that you love are definitely going to stick around. But as a reader and as a consumer of media, you just have so much more to choose from now. So let's divide these into different categories. So you have the classic restaurant reviewer, let's say at the New York Times. You have the Yelp reviews, which are just people going to restaurants and leaving reviews. But then you also have a third category, which are influencers for whom this is a real business. So maybe we should start with Joel Gonzalez's restaurant, Marisco's Corona and Van Nuys. Why don't you tell that story? Because it was pretty surprising. Sure. So Joel Gonzalez has a restaurant in Van Nuys called Marisco's Corona. It's, it's a small place. It's been there for years. Um, he told me about a specific Friday where there was a line out the door. It was unlike anything he and his sister, who runs the restaurant with him, had seen. And he ended up running out of food that weekend and having to close on Monday because there were so many customers. And they were ordering two dishes in particular, a burrito and a seafood dish. And he just kind of was scratching his head as to what was going on. And he asked one of his customers, you know, how did you hear about us? And he said, well, I saw you guys on TikTok. Joel, a couple weeks prior, had reached out to a food influencer named Ashley Rodriguez. She goes by the handle at First Date Guide on both TikTok and Instagram. And he asked her if she could come in and do a video. And uh, he agreed to pay her $1,500 for a single post, but he had no idea when she was going to post or what she was going to post. And apparently earlier that day, when that line started to form, that's when Ashley decided to post this 42-second video to TikTok of her eating at the restaurant. Have you guys heard of the spot that serves aguachiles in an avocado boat? This is Corona Mariscos in Van Nuys, California. Trust me, aguachiles is way better than ceviche. Well, if you like spicy, that is. And... You know, Joel said that this was the best money he could have spent. <laughs> well, it's like, I guess, hiring an ad agency back in the day, right? Yeah. So I look at them as part of the restaurant's marketing plan. Right. They're hired to promote the restaurant. It's very calculated. It's planned out. It's not spontaneous. And in the case of Ashley and a couple other influencers who she works with, you know, the restaurants they work with, they are in on those quarterly meetings. They are making suggestions for menu changes or additions. Their opinions are valued as part of the actual team for the restaurant. But to continue with my old school <laughs> upbringing, I mean, okay, she got paid for this. So, look, I understand if somebody naturally comes out and says, you know, I love this restaurant. But she was paid to love the restaurant. Is that something that was made clear? Yeah, so that's the thing. There, there are uh, specific guidelines for influencers and not just for food, uh, for any influencer. You know, the FTC has very clear guidelines on what they're supposed to disclose in their posts if they receive anything, you know, whether that be money or, you know, any sort of goods in exchange for a post, you're supposed to make that clear and say something like hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. Yeah, you mentioned the FTC. I went and got the guidelines. So they're, they're really clear that if you're posting, you need to reveal any kind of familial connection yes. <laughs> or financial uh, relationship. And of course, I would assume almost nobody does that. Yeah, it's it's very self-regulated at the moment. Uh, <laughs> and and a lot of the influencers who I spoke with for the story did say that they think that it's assumed that they got whatever goods they're 
you know, showing on Instagram or TikTok for free. And that when they have posted like a hashtag ad or sponsor that they've noticed that the engagement on the post isn't as high. So they make it a point not to do that unless the brand they're working with specifically asks that they do it. So influencers come in all different types. I mean, you have the low end of the scale, people just getting started. I guess if you're a restaurant owner, you, people are asking you all the time for free food. There was a case, uh, a Chinese restaurant in St. Louis called Corner 17, and that didn't work out so well <laughs> for for either party, right? Yeah, the, the, it was an influencer based in Los Angeles, uh, and he reached out to this restaurant saying, here's my page, here's what I do, here are the videos I work on. Would you be willing to give me $100 towards my meal and I'll do a video for you? And the restaurant said, no, thank you, and he went in anyway and uh, posted a review. Some of the review was complimentary, some of it really wasn't. The influencer wrote, worst dumplings ever. The food honestly wasn't good. Uh, the service was great. And then I wouldn't recommend this place to anyone. Sorry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very complimentary. Uh, and the restaurant took that as him retaliating against them for not being willing to put $100 towards his meal. The restaurant then went on social media, accused him of doing that. And yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out well for either of them. But that is something that I feel that a lot of restaurants do have to deal with. A lot of the publicists I talked to said that they're constantly fielding requests for free meals or collabs, which is kind of the term for an exchange of a free meal for a post. There was another one here, which I really like. Eat whatever you want is the handle on Instagram. She, yes, she travels with a car full of props. Her big thing is, you know, what do I need to do to make this look good? So she plans these things out months in advance. She plans out the outfits. Her business plan and media kit are very professional and impressive. This is a full-time job for her, uh, and she's very good at it. So you've been a food journalist for obviously several years. So what, what do you think? I mean, how do you view it given all of your background? I mean, the reason I did this story was because I was fascinated by this world I was not familiar with. And I just was really curious about the inner workings and whether or not people could actually make money doing this and kind of how it all worked. You know, food influencers and restaurants are basically gambling. You, you can post something on the Internet. You have no idea whether it's going to go viral or take off or not. So maybe you paid $1,500 and it only got 100 views, you know. So I'm, I'm more still just fascinated and amused by the entire thing. And just in, I'm just curious to see where it goes next. Jen, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I'm glad I don't own a restaurant right <laughs> now because it sounds pretty complicated. Thanks. You and me both. Thank you for having me. That was food columnist Jen Harris. Her article for the LA Times is called How Food Influencers Can Make or Break Restaurants. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. All right, Chris, before we take a call, I am very, very jealous to hear you've been in Paris, and I want to know what was the best thing you ate. The best thing I ate? I mean, first thing, let me just say something about Paris. You know, when you get into the outer arrondissement, mm -hmm. the 13th and other things, they're great neighborhoods. They're really interesting. They're changing a lot. We found this wonderful bistro. And one of the things they make is stuffed cabbage. Mm -hmm. But it's not like anything you've had before. I wouldn't say it's light, but it's not heavy. 
and has some ground up sausage and lots of other things in it. The rumor was they also threw some foie gras in it. I'm not sure that's true. But it was absolutely delicious. That was one. The other thing I had, we also went around looking for Vietnamese restaurants or Southeast Asian restaurants. And we went to one place really on the outskirts of Paris. And he made a Vietnamese version of chicken wings. Mm. Well, he fried the wings. And then he had a a sort of half-size wok. And he had lemongrass and fish sauce, et cetera, et cetera. And he took the wings out, drained them, and threw them in the wok and just tossed them for a couple minutes. And I don't love chicken wings. Oh, I do. Well, they've never been one of my favorite things. I could not stop eating these. I mean, they were so good. It's so much better. Crispy, Yeah, they're crispy, and the sauce was light, you know, but obviously with fish sauce and some other things, it had a lot of flavor. Yummy. Absolutely delicious. So those are two things. I'm even more jealous. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Okay, on to a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bobby from Burlington, Vermont. Okay, Chris Territory. Yeah. How can we help you today? I had a question about white pepper. Every once in a while when I have something with white pepper, I notice these pronounced off flavors that I can only describe as being barnyard-like in flavor. Hmm. And so I'm wondering, is this something that everyone experiences or is this something that people only sensitive to these chemical compounds experience? Well, that's a very good question. Yes, I think that it is known that white pepper can be a bit funky. Unrelated question, how do you feel about goat cheese? I love goat cheese. I mean, it, it also has a very like pronounced sharp flavor, but I don't pick up... The funkiness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a different kind of funkiness. So it isn't you anti-funk. It's the funk of the white no. pepper. Okay, very briefly. So white pepper, you know, green, black, white are all related. Green is mm-hmm. is unripe, and black is allowed to stay on the you know vine till the very end, and then it's taken off and aged. It gets as large as it's going to get, and then it gets harvested and dried. White okay. stays on till the end, and then it's soaked in water to lose sort of the flesh part of it. And that goes on for a while, and it decomposes, and that's sort of the fermentation part of it. And then eventually all that flesh comes off, and it's dried. And during that process, there are some oils in white pepper that can provide that, quote-unquote, barnyard aroma. Is this a default in the production process of white pepper? Or, I mean, is this something that only happens when that fermentation process goes wrong or with pepper that may be aged a little too long? You know, I honestly don't know. That sounds like two very likely assumptions. Chris, what's your thoughts? In places like Thailand, they don't really use black pepper. They use white pepper. I many, think in many Vietnam Asian as countries. Well. And it's because it's not as strong and it has a sort of fruitier flavor, mm-hmm. which I like too. I think it's just because some of the volatile oils in the pepper have a stronger flavor. I don't pick that up. And maybe it's because the white pepper is produced differently in Southeast Asia or it's a different genus. I don't know. I just mm-hmm. get a fruitier, somewhat lighter flavor than you would with black pepper, and that's why they use it. It's really nice with food. I don't know if it's a different pepper. It may be. I haven't picked up that barnyard smell when I've had food there with that white pepper. So I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think since you want to avoid that funk, maybe what you need to do is I would buy small batches of white pepper corns from different and, and just decide which brand you like the best. Yeah, and it's not necessarily that I want to avoid it. It's just that I never really know what I'm going to get right. when I purchase that yeah. product of white pepper. 
I think you might have to do a little experimentation on your own. It could be that the white peppercorns you get are old because, you know, spices can be sitting around for up to two years before they get to you from the grower. They may go through 10 or 12 different hands, distributors, wholesalers. So Mm -hmm. very often the spices you buy at a supermarket are old. Yeah. So that could be the problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was really interesting and Thank you for addressing the issue and answering the question. Okay, thank you. All right, you. thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need help with breakfast, lunch, or dinner, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Norma Jane from Decatur, Georgia. How can we help you? Well... About 2008, I was diagnosed with celiac disease, so ever since then, I've been cooking gluten-free, and I love to bake, so that's kind of become my specialty, but I have some issues that I hope you can help me with. One of them being, I can't get my cakes or muffins or donuts or you know whatever I'm making to rise very high. They always tend to be a little on the flat side. Are you using a gluten-free cookbook? What are the recipes? So I like to use a flour blend that came from a cookbook, and it has a nice blend of things. It doesn't come out tasting gritty. Yeah. You have to add xanthan gum to it, I believe. Xanthan gum and then some starch like a potato starch or corn starch of some kind probably, rice starch. It has a little bit of potato starch. It has a little bit of tapioca, a little bit of powdered milk. And so are you using a traditional, let's say, muffin recipe, substituting the flour out? No, I like to, you know, find a gluten-free recipe, but I'm just not sure what's the ingredient in baking that makes things rise the highest, you know? Years ago, I worked on a gluten-free cookbook. Um, The thing we found is that every recipe is different. If you're doing a white bread, if you're doing a muffin, if you're doing a cake, if you're doing a cookie, they all had their peculiarities. You had to go really test all that out. Mm -hmm. Every single type of recipe was a different problem to be solved. The flour mixture with the white rice and brown rice, et cetera, is a starting point. But there are lots of other things you have to think about, like, you know, moisture content, how much liquid to how much flour, how much you fill it up, what temperature you use. It's not just a function of leavener. It's a function of everything. I haven't done a ton of gluten-free cooking, but that makes complete sense because with regular wheat flour, you have a structure that, you know, you can work with, that you can leaven in a predictable way. But when you're dealing with all these other kinds of flours that aren't wheat-based, it's much harder. One thing I have noticed is there are recipes. as a Spanish almond cake, for example, I make all the time. You know, it's almond flour. I find recipes based on almond flour to be pretty easy to work with. Uh, and You don't need special flour. So that's one category of baking I think is really predictable. Mm-hmm. I really like to make cake donuts. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you can only fill the donut pan so high, right? Right. And then when they bake, they rise up. But there's a gluten-free bakery that I go to, and theirs are just huge. And I just can't figure out how they're getting those guys so big. Did you ask them? No. (laughs) I find 95% of the time, if you just walked in and said, look, 
I have to eat gluten-free. I love your donuts. Could you help me out? I'll bet you almost anything they'll help you. Yeah, just flatter the bejesus yeah, out of them. Just, that always works. <laughs> no, I mean, people like to share what they know. All right. I'm going to be brave. I'm going to do that. Do it. Yeah, and, because they— And let us know what you find out. People like okay. to share their recipes, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Okay, I will. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much sure. for taking my call. All Take right. care. Bye. 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 You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we go behind the takeaway counter with author Angela Hoy. That's up right after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats, but for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with author Angela Hoy. In 1988, her parents opened a takeaway restaurant in Wales called Lucky Star. Her new memoir about the restaurant is Takeaway, Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter. Angela, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. I love your book, Takeaway. Uh, I just wanted to read a couple sentences and ask you about it. You wrote, I desperately wanted to hide the kind of person I was at home at the takeaway impatient, selfish, and a stick of dynamite waiting to go off. I became paranoid that I was shouting all the time like my parents, trying to speak above the deafening sounds of the kitchen. So that experience, you know, people usually write books about how it was so wonderful working in a restaurant as a child. Mm. This, this, had, this had a dark side to it, I guess, as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to show um, the, not the dark side, but just how hardworking and tenacious, like, the hospitality industry is, especially the immigrant businesses, the smaller takeaways that don't get as much, you know, and recognition as like Michelin stars or like the big name restaurants. But yeah, I feel like it was a unique experience. Like I started working in the takeaway when I was eight years old and I would like stand on a plastic stool struggling to you know, hold like a big, like massive bottle of Coca-Cola, serving customers, being on the <laughs> phone. And I wasn't t- like tall enough to reach over the counter. So it's a very um, odd experience being in a takeaway when, you know, you work and live in the same place. And I really wanted to show the blurred lives of like working and living in the same space. So maybe you could just paint a picture for us. How big is the takeaway? How many people were cooking? Uh, it w- just physically, what was it like? 
it was tiny. I don't know how the five of us fit. So I've got two older brothers and they're my parents um, and I'm the youngest. But as you walk in, there's like a, a big waiting room counter space, which was probably the biggest room in the house. Um, and under, like underneath the counter, no one really sees behind the counter. But honestly, it's like full of junk. <laughs> it's like it's a mishmash of like our personal things because we just didn't have enough space, but also some professional things. So there'll be, you know, crates of cans. And there'll be like packaging for like chopsticks or like soy sauces. And then you'd have like the big kitchen. Uh, I say big, but it's not that big. <laughs> it's just um, the red floor, anti-slip tiles. Uh, you have a lot of silver worktops and then this island and then a row of walks. So normally my dad would be on the walk. So he'd be like stuck in the corner. He can't really get out. So yeah, it was just very cramped living quarters. And we would always constantly, you know, be climbing over each other, knocking into each other um, and just wanting some privacy. And like we never had any privacy because everything was, you know, everything was shared. <laughs> so after World War II in the UK, many Chinese families took over the old fish and chip shops and then they converted them to Chinese takeaway restaurants. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of them did. So in the, I think it was from the 60s to the 80s, I was like a really big Chinese takeaway boom in the UK after the war. And a lot of fish and chips shops used to be like Jewish owned and they started to retire. And so Chinese takeaways took over a lot of fish and chip shops and they would kind of double up. So there would be like egg fried rice and noodles, but with like fish and fried chips. So it was this beautiful mishmash of the two. So I guess it was very much like an Anglo-Cantonese fair. That's what you would get. You mentioned once, like you said, my mom was even working with crutches on her arms working the deep fat fryer. Did you just mm -hmm. give us an example of what it was like in that kitchen cooking? Um, I, I appreciate having my family and I think we wouldn't be so close if we didn't have the takeaway. But yeah, like, you know, I it's, it's an odd place to be kitchens. You kind of love it or you hate it, and or or both simultaneously. Well, like, yeah, but it, it's like a roller coaster. It's um, the highs are very high and the lows are very low. Is what I'm saying. It's like when you're flat out busy and everything goes smoothly, the customers are really happy, and you manage to bash out all your orders. Like you feel euphoric. Like it's such a great feeling, right. working under pressure to get everything done. But when you know, it's like a domino effect. When one thing goes wrong, say I don't know, like you're missing this order or the customers were unhappy because I was like the peppers were missing or like there was peas in it when I didn't ask for peas like it can be very chaotic and it's a very difficult um, environment to be in. Let's talk a little bit about recipes. Four Seasons is sort of I guess probably a poor description but sort of like a surf and turf it has a little bit of everything in it. Yeah. What's Four Seasons? Um, so it's a chop suey, essentially, but that was our take on a chop suey. And chop suey is a very Asian-American dish. It was a lot of the Asian people that settled in America. That was kind of the first and most like ubiquitous Chinese takeaway dish. It was essentially just like odds and ends. It was like bits of cabbage, bits of bean sprouts, carrots and bamboo shoots. And Was it based on an actual recipe in China or was it completely made up for a Western audience? Um, I think it was completely made up. Like, I actually think it was completely made up, but uh, took uh, essence from Chinese techniques. So, yeah, so it would be like very Western ingredients using what was around. So using 
uh, because it was like after the war, right? So there wasn't that much like fresh produce readily available. So there was a lot of like tinned bamboo shoots or like water chestnuts and green peppers. And I guess like for my parents' dish, they kind of added their own take to it. So they added chicken, they added duck, they added woodier mushrooms and prawns to the dish. And that was our take on chop suey, I would say. Any other recipe that comes to mind that was particularly interesting at the takeaway? Um, we had a dish called like Chicken Maryland, which was um, essentially just like oh, yeah. chicken breast, but it was breadcrumbed, deep fried. The, the, this is the dish you referred to as, an, as annoying, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. We called it annoying because it was just like fussy to make. Um, but yeah, it was essentially very, very Western and it wasn't Chinese at all, I would say, but people loved it. But yeah, it's all fried things. Mm. And I think it was a very Welsh appetite. And we get a lot of like variety meals where you get a bit of everything in one tray and people love that. So you have a tiny little kitchen with all mm. these people in it. And you said you had over 100 items on the menu. What's the trick for people who are not in the restaurant business? What's the trick to turn out 100 different dishes in a small kitchen? Um, I don't know. You might have to ask my dad. <laughs> um, my dad had almost like a a periodic table, like graph hmm. on the side of the walk. And you can see all the like bullet points of like the basic recipe. So, for example, like uh, Four Seasons which would be number one on the menu that it just says like prawn fish chicken. So you can like just whack it out under pressure in like under five minutes. Well, after, after 30 years, you probably, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you didn't have to look at that chart anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the takeaway gets sold in 2018. And in the book, you ask a really interesting question, which is who am I without the shop? So did you ever answer that question? I don't know. Like, I'm still figuring it out because it's such a huge part of my life. Um, you know, I, I worked there until I was 26 years old. And I I think the takeaway has kind of shaped who I am as a person. Like, in a way, like I had to grow up, me and my brothers had to grow up quite quickly. We had to parent our own parents because they couldn't really speak English. So we had to look after them and we had to, you know, translate everything, translate letters, translate bills or speak to customers. And I still do now, like in our family WhatsApp, my parents will still send a very blurry electricity bill and I'm like I can't read this or something <laughs> or like buy their car insurance it's like little things like that um and you know in a way like I'm really grateful for everything that they've done and I'm you know very glad that I've grew up at a takeaway I wouldn't change it for the world did, did it change your how you cook now all the things you made in the takeaway you just never want to eat again or did it oh, no, like, in some I... way it, it influence your current <laughs> menus no, like I absolutely love takeaway food. It's such a treat. It's street food. It's not healthy to eat it every day, but there's a really great Chinese takeaway where I live down the road and uh, I always try to go to support and like it just brings back so many nostalgic memories for me. And I love Chinese takeaway food and it has helped me become a better cook, you know, as much as I didn't want to be involved within food, especially, you know, growing up when you're surrounded by food and then when you leave the shop, you try to find your own way. You wanted to do something completely different, but it's more about like coming to food on your own terms. Um, and I guess like through this book, it's definitely brought me and my family closer, like developing the recipes with my mum, learning about her past, learning about their history. And it's definitely made me a lot more confident in the kitchen. And it's okay if it's not perfect, you know. I think that's the mentality I've taken on with cooking. 
Angela, it's been just a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. That was Angela Hoy. Her memoir is Takeaway, Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter. Working at a takeaway provided fond memories for Angela Hoy, despite the heat, the long hours, and the demanding customers. My father, who fought in World War II, used to sing old army songs with great enthusiasm. Bless the Mall, made popular by Vera Lynn, was a favorite during our cocktail hours, although I was not aware of the more adult lyrics until many years later. Scientists say that we are personal archaeologists. We reconstruct the past with a mixture of imagination and memory to make ourselves happier in the present. So even the worst restaurant job will, over time, be remembered with more than a hint of nostalgia and fondness. So when it comes to memories, bless them all. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Italian wedding soup. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, if you said Italian wedding soup to me, I would just have this image of meatballs floating in, in chicken stock. <laughs> yeah. But I gather, because you've actually been to Italy to taste this and make it, that would be incorrect. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the conventional wisdom about Italian wedding soup, which in Italian is called minestra maritata, is that it's all about the marriage of meat and broth and greens. And that is true, but it's not meatballs. And conventional wisdom is that it's not actually served at weddings, but we're wrong, as usual. It is served at weddings in Italy, and it's a very festive meal. And I was in Campania, and I was about 100 miles inland from Naples, and I was at a farm, and this woman, Antinetta di Grutula, told me that not only did she serve it at her wedding and her daughter's wedding, but her parents insisted she learn how to make it before she could even get married. That's how ingrained in wedding culture this soup is. And so that was the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, in Italy, no meatballs. In America, meatballs, but not at least in Campania. But wait a minute. Who in their right mind would wear a white dress and eat soup? I mean, isn't that like not a really great thing to eat at a wedding? Well, you know, after a few bottles of wine to celebrate, you know, maybe at that point you don't care anymore. And not only is it served at weddings, but it is actually still a reference to the marriage of the broth and the greens and the meat. So it's true, but it's more true than we thought. And it's also more delicious than I thought. They, if they make it every day, they use chicken. But for special occasions, it will have pork in the form of pancetta and prosciutto oftentimes, as well as beef in it, and then tons of greens. And Antonietta harvested tons and tons of wild greens in her farm. And they did truly marry with the broth and the meats. And it was really very good and very simple, but had so much flavor going on. We should just stop and say that all over Italy and Sicily, et cetera, the notion of wild greens, especially bitter greens, oh, yeah. is really important, especially if you had something like pork in a dish. It would offset the richness, right? Yeah, and you know, that is a culture that we just don't appreciate here in the United States. You know, we have wild greens, bitter greens growing in our yards all over the place, and we just don't take advantage of that. But in Italy, they really understand the value, not only the value, but how delicious these greens can be. And they put them to great use in a dish like this. 
So what do they do about the broth? Most of our wedding soup recipes will say two cans of chicken broth. <laughs> right. <laughs> I assume they're not doing that. They are not, in fact. And that's where the pancetta comes in. You know, they start with water and they flavor the water with the carrots, the celery, onions, garlic, you know, red pepper flakes, pancetta. And by the time they're done, they don't need to open a can because there's just so much flavor in that broth that they've created. And then the meat goes in and then all those bitter greens go in. And it just truly is a delicious marriage. And so we do the same thing. We use water as well. We do. Yep. We should just say, though, that in most places in the world, they don't call for broth because they use water and sort of make their own as they go, right? Right, exactly. Why, when you have all these wonderful, simple ingredients that are going to imbue that water with so much flavor, it's going to be so much better than anything you can out of a can or a box. So water, <laughs> like water for broth. <laughs> yes. And how do they finish off and serve the soup? Well, of course, you have to have some croutons, and it's not Italian if you don't put a little bit of Parmesan cheese on there. And a little basil, I would assume, or something. A little basil is nice. But, you know, frankly, you don't need it. With all of those bittersweet herbs and greens in there, it's perfect. So Italian wedding soup actually does have something to do with weddings, but has nothing to do with meatballs. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) JM, thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Italian wedding soup at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News attempts to make France's most complicated dish into an instant meal. That's in just a moment. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Becky Frank. 
Hi, Becky. Where are you calling from? I'm in Oak Park, Illinois. How can we help you today? I have been making challah for about eight years now, and I have tried many different recipes, and I found this one that is easy enough and always turns out great, light, fluffy, the way that we like it. We moved a year ago, and I have a new stove. My previous stove was a Wolf electric oven gas top, and this stove is gas top gas oven. And every time I make the challah now, it is so dense and heavy. The other thing that has changed is my other kitchen was always warmer, and this kitchen is not warm. It's like 64 max. Well, definitely gas ovens are different. They have uneven heat. They're more humid. But I wonder if the second thing you said is more relevant here in terms of how the yeast is proofing. It doesn't feel the same when I'm kneading, when I'm braiding. Nothing feels the same. Is that what you're saying? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Are you using any different yeast? I make it so often that I buy the jar of yeast and I keep it in my fridge. And so when this happened, I went to the packages of yeast so that it would be more fresh. And I just used an instant dry yeast. Were you using instant dry before or active dry? Oh, oh my. I think if you're buying it in the large containers, it's usually active dry. Red Star active dry or whatever it's called. Right, right. Yeah. No, I I think you went from active dry to rapid rise or instant. They're a different animal. Okay. Are you proofing the yeast like you would with active dry or just throwing it in with the dry ingredients? I do. I do proof it. And, you know, this particular recipe says 10 minutes. Right. And then it says the yeast has dissolved when it's nice and foamy. And it honestly never gets to that nice and foamy. Yeah, that's the, that's in, the problem Rapid right there. rise yeast you don't proof because rapid rise or instant doesn't have those cell walls on the outside that need to be dissolved. So you can just throw it right into the dry ingredients. If you're proofing the yeast and it doesn't look foamy and active, that's your problem. If it's rapid rise, you shouldn't be proofing you it at all. You shouldn't be proofing it You at put all. it in with the dry ingredients, and then the general thing okay. is, though, the liquid should be hotter that you add to the recipe than the liquid you would use with the regular yeast. That might be the total issue. I think the other problem is I have a cold kitchen, uh, and when I make mm-hmm. pizza dough, it took me years to figure out what the problem was. And it turns out if the dough is not at the right temperature, it just doesn't end up baking upright. Mm-hmm. So I found that if the dough's around 75, it comes out great. But if the dough's 65, it doesn't. I think Sarah's right. We're both right that the kind of yeast has changed. I would go back okay. to active dry and proof it. Okay. And two, I would also see if you can get that temperature up in the kitchen. By the way, you can get a silicone pad that plugs in and you put your bowl on top of it, it's very thin, and it will heat the bowl and solve the problem of the cold kitchen. I have one of those, and it works really well. Seems like it'd be worth it for you, Becky. I have one of those heating mats from when I'm starting seedlings. I wonder if that would work. As long as it's not too hot. The secret is you don't want to overheat the dough. That's a very good idea. Yeah, Yeah, we like that idea. jury-rigged dough heater thing. Right. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Give that a shot. Yes. Change your reason. I will. Thanks, Becky. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're having trouble in the kitchen, Sarah and I are here to help. 
Give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Dina, and I'm from Chester County, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. How can we help you? Well, I had a question, and I thought if anyone would know the answer to this, it would be you and Sarah. My mother, in the 50s, made a cake that she called her favorite chocolate cake, and it uses a technique that baffled me, because when I make a cake, I usually cream the butter, add the sugar, add the eggs, and then start alternating flour with milk or whatever liquid. Now, remember, this is the 50s, and for whatever reason, my family always used butter at the table. But when my mother baked, she used a product called Nucoa. And at that point in time, it was made with coconut oil, which is interesting. Hmm. So it dates to cream the Nucoa, add flour, salt, and sugar, add milk, mix well, add eggs, chocolate, and vanilla, bake in an 8-inch square pan. And I thought, what? This is total heresy, you know? I mean, I just made it this morning, and it makes a very nice, small, Mm. eight-inch square cake with a chocolate frosting made with confectioner sugar. And it's a lovely cake, and everyone always loves it. But I wondered if you two had heard of this method, which is called reverse creaming, and apparently dates back to Betty Crocker in the 50s. Yeah, reverse creaming is taking relatively soft butter and mixing it with flour. And the concept is you're coating the flour with a fat, which means you get less gluten development and get a more tender crumb. Right. For a snack cake or something like this, it's not necessary, but it's a perfectly good method. I guess my first question is, did you find Nucoa? Did you use margarine? Did you use butter? What did you use? No, I tried to, you know, do this as close to what my mom did. And I used Blue Bonnet. And it tastes fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think margarine or processed oil right. or coconut oil, et cetera, or coconut fat will give you a better texture cake because butter tends to dry out and it isn't quite as good later on. So it should last better. Mm. So I personally mm. wouldn't use margarine, but it probably makes a pretty right. decent cake. So that makes sense to me. What right. did you do for the chocolate flavor? How much chocolate? I used one and a half squares of unsweetened chocolate. That's all? Yep. And it tastes great. Really? It's almost brownie-like in texture. Not quite. Right. But I actually measured it. Baked, this cake measures less than an inch high. I have two questions. Are you happy with a one-inch high cake, which seems a little odd, and two... Does it have good chocolate flavor? Because I know a lot of bakers will use cocoa or cocoa and melted chocolate to really give you depth of flavor. Oh, interesting. Now, this tastes sufficiently chocolatey to me. I think we'd have to categorize this as if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. You like it. It's your mother's recipe. It works. Who am I to... You know, I mean, Sarah, do you have... <laughs> no, I, I mean, I completely agree with Chris with that statement. Uh, but, you know, if you did it the regular creaming method where you cream the sugar and the butter to begin with, you know, and then you add the eggs one at a time, 
you would have probably had a lighter, airier cake. So it just depends on sort of what you're looking for. But I 100% agree with if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, it gives you that more velvety, red velvet cake texture or devil's food texture if you reverse cream. But anyway, it works, you know. I mean, I I, I love arguing with people, but. There's nothing to argue about here. Unfortunately, there's nothing for me to argue about. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Dina. Yep. Okay, thank you. A pleasure. Bye. Yeah, thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Sharon from Pittsburgh, and here's my tip. Whenever I have sticks of butter, I always save, well, I try to save the uh, wrappers, and I keep them in the freezer so that whenever I have to butter a pan or something like that, I just take one of the wrappers out because it has all that extra butter on it. And instead of, you know, wasting more butter, I just use that and then it's done and throw it away. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tips right here on Milk Street Radio, go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's check in with our friend, Alex Inews. Alex, what's going on in Paris? Hey, Chris, everything is going on over here, okay? I'm working on a super traditional, super iconic, and super touchy recipe here in France. I'm working on my version of beef bourguignon. Oh, no. This is, oh, no. This, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to write my own legacy. This is a rabbit hole recipe, right? This is a rabbit hole. But I didn't know that when I started. So beef bourguignon is all about memory for me, so mostly comfort. It started very early with my grandmother, you know, making her almighty beef bourguignon. This is a dark living room with like a, a big, heavy, dark wood table in the center. All the families around it. My grandma would bring an enormous Dutch oven in the center, covered with a lid, obviously. And then she would just reveal it with a sense of drama. And then she would serve me ladles on ladles on ladles of beef bourguignon. If, if, I, if I want to make my own version of beef bourguignon, it has to have some comfort. And that is at the core of beef bourguignon. Now, I thought I need to go beyond this. So I started doing a few research on who's doing good beef bourguignon, good and modern beef bourguignon here in Paris. And I found a place called Le Petit Célestin, located right on the River Seine, where they claim, and also uh, many of their customers claim, that this place sells the best beef bourguignon in Paris. So I went to that place, I had beef bourguignon, and my mind was blown. So, so you sat down and tasted it and you had an out-of-body experience? Is that what happened? Exactly, that's what happened to me. But, but in, in all honesty, it's that powerful, what, what they're doing right there. It's, it's the same vibe in terms of comfort, but it's just bringing things to a restaurant level, to a good restaurant level, meaning that the sauce is darker, it's shinier, but also they have been working on the visuals, of course, because it's a restaurant, but also on the textures. They are playing with different textures. For example, they had a bit of parsley that they fry at the very end. Mm. The carrots and the onions and the bacon, it almost feels like everything has been cooked separately. Not mm. everything in a big Dutch oven, which, which has some merit to it as well, but here they are doing everything separately so that every doneness is on point. Right. Okay. Now, I'm a dad. I've got two boys. And I'm pretty busy. So 
even though I, I love beef bourguignon, I can't afford to make it like every other day, even though I would love to eat it every other day. So what did I do? I thought maybe I can prepare everything in advance, most of the things, leave a few things for the end, and make some sort of an instant beef bourguignon that would still be made all from scratch. That was my idea. I, I was trying to, 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 to come up with something that I could wrap up in one hour and still be called beef bourguignon. You got nothing else to do except try to do the impossible. <laughs> okay, that's good. Exactly. So basically I thought, okay, I'm going to divide the actions into two parts. The things that I can do in advance and the things that I want to keep for the end to still have some life in that dish. So in advance, you can work on the beef. That's what I did. I sous vide big chunks of cheek and chuck for 25 hours. Then for the stock, I made a homemade stock, which I reduced drastically afterwards. And I made ice cube from it. Mm -hmm. And then for the wine, I did something similar. I bought six liters of wine and then I reduced it down to a tenth of its volume and I made ice cube from it. Yeah, can we just stop there for a second? I totally agree. I find recipes where you pour wine from a bottle into a pot with meat are awful. It, it destroys it the meat, it's, it's, it drains like it of, of flavor, and the wine is nasty. Exactly, it doesn't work. The acidity of the wine is just messing up with the whole recipe. You have to reduce your wine first. Yes. So this is one of the things that I've done. I've got my three uh, prepared in advance elements, so meat, stock, and wine. Now, everything is in the freezer. Everything is ready for me to be used. That's great. So on weekdays, whenever I want to do a, a beef bourguignon, the only thing that I've got to do is the garnish. So I use bacon. I use onions and I use mushrooms. But of course, you know me, it would be too easy if I were to use exactly these. <laughs> so instead of bacon, I use an Italian alternative called guanciale, which I think is superior in so many ways. Right. Uh, the onions, so traditionally in beef bourguignon, you need to use pearl onions. They are a pain to find. So I just use shallots and I think they are, for the money, I think they're better. Mm. And for mushrooms, mushroom needs to be, you know, stewed usually for beef bourguignon. I don't like it. I think... Water and mushroom don't go well together, so I just stir-fry them. So I've got my stir-fried mushrooms, I've got my caramelized shallots, and I've got some guanciale that I've just been rendering in a pan. Basically, what I do, I just assemble the whole thing in one saucepan, and in 30 minute time, I've got a homemade, all from scratch, beef bourguignon, like for example, on, on, on a Thursday night. Who can do this? So your two sons... Yes. You have this wonderful dish, beef bourguignon, and they bite into it and they go, Dad, this is great? Or do they say something else <laughs> entirely? No. I would be lying if That's I were to I tell you that they like it. I mean, they're just kids. They, they, they just go like, Dad, can we go back to, I don't know, like something stupid that I made the day before that just took me five minutes without even thinking about it. I try to please them, but it's impossible. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. A fast food version of beef bourguignon, and hopefully your kids will come to like it. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> thank you, Chris. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member Get full access to every recipe, all live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. 
You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.